This is Souls and Souls, and I'm Reverend Bath. Today's conversation is our second in the Artificial Intelligence series, and it's a good one. So do buckle up and settle in for what promises to be a super engaging conversation. Today, I'm in conversation with Linda Kitzler, a PhD candidate in the Rhetoric Department of University of California, Berkeley. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, The Atlantic, Wired, and more. I first became acquainted with Linda when I read her article in the Times, Can Silicon Valley Find God? Her most recent publication in Jewish Currents is entitled The Many Oblivions of Bobby Yar. It tells a timely story of the murder and intergenerational trauma of Ukrainian Jews. She has a new book that's being released in the spring of 2022, Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for inviting me and for having me on. Yeah, so I invited you to speak about artificial intelligence with me because that's a, a current uh, topic of interest for me. But on this day in this world history moment, it feels like maybe we should begin by talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if you could just share how that story touches the the story of your family. Yeah, well, right. So the first thing I've been trying to say about the war is just to emphasize that it's been going on for eight years and that it's not, it's not as if it just started, you know, 21 days ago from the time that we're recording this, you know, it was very much an ongoing reality in the lives of Ukrainians. Um, the Eastern territories were occupied, the ceasefire never held. And so, it was kind of this kind of ongoing reality in how you had to live your life, even if you were in Kiev far from the front line. The difference was, of course, that Ukraine was developing, it was emerging, it had kind of eight years of full um, independence from Moscow. And the fruits of that, when I was there in September, you could really kind of feel it in the streets. It was just so modern, so youthful, so, I mean, energetic and exciting. And it kind of breaks my heart now that mm. so much of that is gone and that it will take so many more years to rebuild it. Um, personally, my, my mother is, you know, from an American perspective, we would call her Ukrainian, but really she's Soviet. Um, she was born in Riga, Latvia, uh, but, but both of my grandparents were from Ukraine we have cousins who are still there. Um, they were living in Kharkov until recently. They spent the first week and a half of the war in the bomb shelter underneath their apartment building um, with one other family and five children among them. And thank God they are safe. Thank God they kind of lived through that and got through it. And they were able to leave the city about a week ago. And now they're sheltering in the forest um but it's pretty tough obviously they like there isn't a lot of gas to go around there isn't a lot of food to go around and when they can find it they take get a lot to kind of sustain them until the next time they can find it um i'm sure many people many listeners have read about the difficulty of the humanitarian corridors um a lot of people are in much worse situations than they are um, in Mariupol and Kherson and other occupied cities. 
Um, so yeah, it's a horrible situation. And for me, it's been really remarkable and quite disturbing to see how quickly I or and us, I guess, collectively can adjust to the reality of this kind of horrific thing that I couldn't have imagined three weeks ago. Yeah, and almost like um, it's almost like we're st from this distance, right? But still numb to the shock of how quickly things escalated. You, you talk about your family taking shelter in the forest, and I'm imagining that these are people who lived in a home with all the amenities like the rest of us until three weeks ago. Yeah, and basically, yeah. a lot of Ukrainians have done what they are doing. You know, many Ukrainians have an apartment in the city and a dacha, you know, country home where they would go. And so a lot of people thought, okay, you know, probably Russia is not gonna invade, but if they do invade, we'll just go to the dacha, we'll be safe there. And a lot of people I spoke to were able to do that. Um, my family was not able to do that because Russian tanks were already where their dacha was. Um, but those who did make it to the countryside quickly found that the missiles were going there too. And so everyone has been trying to move west as fast as they can. Mm -hmm. And so in the midst of this, you've written an upcoming book <laughs> with this uh, very intriguing title, um, you know, asking when the Holocaust ends. And I, I just, uh, you know, before we transition into artificial intelligence, and I do think we will, um, the transition won't be as shocking as people might think. Um, is does the Holocaust ever end or is that the paradox of the title? Yeah, I think they meant it as a question and not a prescription. I meant it to kind of bring attention to the fact that we are in this much anticipated moment when the last witnesses are dying and we've been here for some time, but really now is the time when all of the kind of buildup of the effects of what that means are really starting to be felt um, in law, in culture, in history, in politics, as we are seeing, right? Part of the reason that we, um, so many people are asking, what does it mean when Putin claims that he's denazifying Ukraine? What does it mean when he claims there's a genocide there? A lot of those, the fact that we're able to pose the question, the fact that it's able to be used as a very perverted justification for war is in some ways a kind of after effect of, you know, this, on the one hand, an inability to think about the story of the Holocaust ending and a kind of paralysis with what do we do now that it has kind of drifted into history? You know, are we actually willing to let it become a historical event? And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I will uh, look forward to reading that and uh, just really urge people from all uh, faith traditions or, or none um, to, to explore yeah. what it is you're sharing. Yeah. So as we transition the conversation, I, I often like to ask people, and it's particularly um, relevant, I think, in this conversation, to tell me a little bit about your own faith story or the threads from your past that are woven into who you are, the stories that you choose to tell and uncover for us? Um, yeah, yeah, happily. Um, I So my family is from the Soviet Union. My mother is from Jewish family. Um, and because, you know, my whole family is from there, that meant that Jewishness was not practiced. Um, the family religion was communism. 
you know, my mother only became aware that she was Jewish kind of late in her life. And, um, you know, like many people of her background from the Soviet Union wasn't practicing. And when they immigrated to the United States as Jews, because, you know, there was this big wave in the uh, late 80s during perestroika when um, one of the first waves of Jewish immigration from the Soviet Union came over, that's when they kind of first started to realize what it meant to be Jewish um, in the United States, which is very different um, from what it meant over there. So mm -hmm. I kind of grew up in those circles and I, you know, was given a religious education early in my life and then um, have been kind of um, secular, but occasionally practicing since then. Well, thanks. So, so when this article that you wrote uh, in the summer of 2021, can Silicon Valley find God? I, I received it, which is interesting. We get the New York Times on Sunday delivered to our home. So here I am reading this um, artificial intelligence uh, article in good old this archaic paper <laughs> fashion. <laughs> um, my first response, and honestly, your article for me was transformative because frankly, before then, I'm not a science fiction person. I, you know, I complain yeah, about either. the algorithms. <laughs> I complain about the algorithms like everyone else, um, but I didn't think it concerned me. And, and I'll admit if, if what you might call your small self or my ego was um, triggered first, because I thought to myself, oh, if Christians are starting to infiltrate the ethics of Silicon Valley, what if it's, what if it's those conservative Christians? Mm -hmm. And what, what if they take over the ethics? Uh, so I, I felt riled up to uh, have a more progressive point of view in the conversation. Yeah. Um, but what possessed you? <laughs> this not so much practicing uh, cultural Jew to to even go there for this story? Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you, I have a very low tolerance for euphemisms. Um, and I think that when you're reporting on technology, you encounter them everywhere. Um, and I find them to be one of the most cynical and frustrating things to encounter when you're interviewing someone. Um, mm. And so I was doing some technology reporting and I was asking people about ethics because ethics in AI became this buzzword and no one really knew what it meant. And, you know, I actually walked into a meeting at Salesforce and cause I was supposed to ask them about their AI ethics. And I had looked up the people in the meeting beforehand and I saw one of them was on the board of this kind of very progressive synagogue in the center of San Francisco. And so I kind of mentioned it to him, like I heard this was a cool place, um, but it was kind of aside from the conversation. And while we were talking about things like, you know, people's morals, people's values, you know, what kinds of, what they think is true, how do they, where do they look for, for sources of truth and meaning? Um, in the context of that conversation, it had to be very sanitized and it was almost as if everyone was afraid of speaking about religion. Um, so that kind of set me off and I wanted to know why. Well, and you asked, I mean, you asked several people, I believe, where they, 
if ethics is the buzzword, where are they getting the ethics from? And it um, it sounded like you uh, didn't get really clear answers. And the, the best they had to offer was, well, we just asked people's opinions internally what their ethics were. Like, how did that resonate yeah. for you? Yeah, no, exactly. And that's the thing. That's exactly what they said. And, you know, for me, it was an interesting moment because for so long, there has been this, or at least I guess in Silicon Valley culture, this kind of um, pride in not atheism, but kind of this sense that all other belief systems, all other forms of knowledge are somehow inferior to the kind of techno-utopian way of thinking that is very predominant in the sector. And it was a moment when I was like, okay, well here it's coming home to roost. And here's the moment when I see it beneath the surface. I see the place where the individual beliefs of tech workers in whatever capacity they might be are actually being harnessed. You know, the company's asking for them, but they're not asking for their source. And, you know, I think it's an interesting moment that we're in right now where workers are encouraged to bring their full selves to their workplace mm -hmm. now, um, you know, including their faith and other dimensions of their lives. But employers are trying, trying to figure out what that exactly means um, and how that kind of changes the workplace. And so I spoke to one engineer who told me that uh, when she arrived at Google, she started holding prayer sessions in the lobby. And I just loved that image in this space that's kind of the alpha and omega of you know, what we've come to think of as Silicon Valley, just a bunch of engineers holding a prayer session and having that, you know, you imagine it must have been shocking to some of their colleagues, but to others, it was like, no, this is just part of our life. So there's a lot of dimensions going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, then I th think, okay, so uh, there's a, a whole, um, group of people who would say, well, religion, organized religion has done a lot of harm. So, so maybe, I mean, is there an argument for, well, you know, whatever religion uh, Silicon Valley comes up with, whether it's some sort of techno atheism, um, maybe it's good enough. Maybe, maybe religions are, can't offer anything better. Like, what would yeah, you say to that? I would find that I find that to be a horrifying argument um, because they have come up with religions. That's the thing, you know, they are, there is this kind of very prevalent allergy, you know, among those who have disavowed the traditional belief systems. There is this claim to be outside of it and yet an embrace of what they would call philosophies. Um, not ideologies and not religions, even though, you know, arguably that's exactly what they are, right? There are these schools of thought that are like effective altruism, like rationalism. Um, Techno-utopianism is kind of a um, all-encompassing term for these things, you know, transhumanism. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of different belief systems that I believe are effectively religions and in some dimensions are, you know, as good and as bad as all other belief systems. So if those are already taken root, then there's no reason, or in fact, there's even more reason to have all kinds of belief systems to be part of the conversation and not just um, abandoning this 
you know, what will shape the future to these, you know, honestly, very new and honestly, not super thought out systems of thought. So for those who, um, who aren't as well read as you, let's, let's unpack a bit the, <laughs> uh, the transhumanism and the uh, utopian uh, techno utopia. Are you pointing here towards this unquestioned idea by a certain sector um, in, in the AI world of we are moving towards um, yeah. uh, machines that are completely conscious, that are intelligent in a human sort of way, and that is unquestionably uh, the right way to go and even our salvation, if you will. Right, exactly. It's this very prevalent um, belief among many engineers and not just those who, you know, I would, I should say, including those who, you know, are Christians or Jews or Muslims, some of them might say we are creating, you know, we are fulfilling our mission hmm. um, by creating AI and those who come from the kind of rationalist or effective altruist worlds would say we are by moving towards um, super intelligence, we are helping humans evolve to their most godlike state when the human becomes a machine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the writer Megan O'Geeblin, who has a new book out on this called God, Human, Animal, Machine. She's so smart on this because she writes about, she grew up in this religious background um, and then disavowed it and then became really enamored with transhumanism for a point. And then she realized, you know, to say that a human will become like a machine and that's the next stage of our evolution is to undermine the very status of the human, right? As if the only way that we can progress is to become machines. Um, and I thought she articulated that really well. And I guess what made me want to write about this so much is that all I'm saying is there should be some questioning of these, of this logic of this kind of linear progression towards a future, which first of all, is not guaranteed. You know, we don't know that we'll be able to have super intelligence and that might <laughs> be a completely, um, I don't know, uh, not made up, but completely unachievable end. And are there not layers in this transhumanism idea um, that really do, um, are, are born out of that, you know, what I would say is one of the, the worst realities of capitalism, of this uh, growth it can keep happening um, and sort of this denial that as, as beings made of flesh and blood um, there actually is a life cycle that right. is it is it a continuation of our uh, desire to um, to live forever our denial of death <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's what I I mean it's an interesting refusal to um, and it's a very old one you know it's it's framed as this kind of innovative future but in fact it's one of the oldest impulses to escape death right to come up with ways to live forever um and that's one of the curious things about our moment i think is that a lot of old impulses are being reframed as somehow revolutionary when in fact you know the logic of them we've you know we know that this isn't going to work and we know not to um you know count on it as, or at least take it for granted, right? When, mm -hmm. 
a lot of the logic that's coming out of um, the Bay Area, Bay Area and London right now, these kinds of big tech hubs is premised on the idea that, well, climate change is, you know, it's bad, but it's not so bad because we are going to colonize space and we will be able to have infinite human flourishing um, on these asteroids where we will build. And, you know, when I say it like that, it sounds like a joke, but in fact, it's not at all. And these are very serious um, imaginations, I should say, by people who are very influential in building technologies. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, I often, I'm intrigued by the idea that we're, we actually need more imagination in our world right now in different directions. Yeah. And um, my concern, and I too, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any putting technology, you know, I think it has great um, benefits to us. But when I go down this road of, okay, we'll just, we'll inhabit space, we'll overcome the climate crisis with technology, it, it echoes for me, that idea of the Christian expression of um, the interventionist God who will make it all right, and therefore we can abdicate ourselves of responsibility. We there'll be some external savior, um, and all will be well. And uh, I just really resonate with the idea, you know, that you've explored of we've kind of discredited uh, those things. Right. It's almost like we are uh, pushing back against science and saying, no, no, we want, um, we want explanations in the world that, um, that can't be explained by history and science. Yeah, it's interesting. And that's why I thought a lot of the Christians I spoke to who are working in artificial intelligence in different ways were very much kind of practicing this idea of doubt and impossibility, right? Like we can never, mm -hmm. AI cannot be, you know, the second coming, it cannot be a God because we cannot know God, we cannot create God, you know? And that's a kind of fundamental humility, which frankly is not abundantly present um, in the Valley. Um, and so that is kind of this, my basic point is that's, why we need to have different perspectives going into the creation of AI, right? Because it's too late, we already have it. It's already all around us. It's not enchanted. And yet we speak of it as if it is. And so if we're going to infuse it, if we're going to speak about it in these religious metaphors, whether we regard them as religious or not, you need to have people from different faith backgrounds contributing to it because otherwise it will be completely dominated, as you said, by, you know, possibly dangerous ideologies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit, I mean, you just referred to the groups who were, you know, humble in the, in the faith perspective. And I, the one group that you uh, discovered was AI and faith, mm -hmm. which had really humble beginnings. Um, can you tell us a bit about, about what you learned about them? Yeah, um, so AI and faith was started by a um, retired risk management lawyer named David Brenner, um, who, you know, discovered the world of AI and discovered the writings about AI as he was walking through his church library and was kind of taken aback by the spiritual metaphors that he saw. Um, 
being advocated there. And so he kind of was like, okay, well, we should have a voice here. Um, and in some ways he was building off of a movement that had started already in different pockets, like Brad Smith, who's the um, president of Microsoft is a very devout Catholic um, and with John Kelly, who was the head of research at IBM, I think right as the pandemic was starting in March, 2020, they went to the Vatican and signed an agreement on the development of AI um, with the Pope. And the Vatican has its own AI development center now because they realized smartly, you know, well, people think about this in really religious terms and we want a part of that. Um, one of my favorite stories is about um, priests who had, uh, they were like activist shareholders in Amazon and they were kind of in the Seattle area and they were working with the ACLU to try to get Amazon to change its surveillance policies. And so they not only kind of sat in on this meeting but they invited others to do so as well and kind of got the, pushed the company in the right direction a little bit. Um, mm. So all that is to say people of faith have been, you know, trying to get in and influence how technology is shaped and what AI and faith did was kind of try to find a space to bring them all together um, and say, you know, there are a lot of people who are doing this on their own in their own jobs day to day, trying to figure out how to practice their faith, whatever that faith may be um, and reconcile it with the world they're building in their jobs. Um, and one of the smartest things I think they did was they said, you know, we're not, you know, um, David Brenner is a Christian and his wife is a minister. And he said, you know, it's not going to work if we're only in one faith, you know, we have to bring everyone together because we all have a voice in this. And I think that was a kind of brilliant decision on their part. And it really did expose how, you know, tech workers from all faith backgrounds have their own references, right? Like one of them was quoting the Quran to me about how he was explaining AI to his colleagues at Microsoft, you know, and Judaism has its own, you know, the first engineers at MIT who created one of the very first artificial intelligence models thought likened their creations to the golem, right? This kind of piece of clay that was infused with the spirit of God. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think there's a rich, rich tradition to it. And I was, yeah, AI and faith, I think is giving it a shape. People can feel really powerless these days and in terms of how they can impact the world. And so you might not have an answer for this, but you've stumbled upon a whole lot of groups who are bringing their faith into the work of technology and its development. Uh, do you think there's a place for ordinary people in this conversation? It's like, I'm trying to say to the people I meet with on the ground every week, we need to care about artificial intelligence, but I'm a little concerned that I have no idea what avenue to point them to. Um, yeah. Maybe conversations are enough as a starting place or No, I think they absolutely are. And um, one of the biggest problems is this idea that artificial intelligence and leaving that aside, you know, just technology in general, that it's so complicated that people can't understand it if they're not already in the field. And that's so dangerous, right? Because then you feel disempowered when something is going wrong or when, you know, you feel disempowered to actually 
understand the risks and the benefits, right? And it's important to have a kind of public literacy about the dangers of surveillance or like if, you know, our Amazon home devices are actually listening to us, that kind of thing. And I think mm -hmm. one of the most important things is just um, demystifying it, you know? And one of my favorite quotes from the piece was when an engineer who was a devout Christian, he said to me, you know, people think about AI as if it's, you know, some kind of God, but really it's just a lot, a lot, a lot of math, you know, it's gen it's just like a lot of equations that are run recursively over and over again. And we think this leads us closer to truth. Um, and I think one of my favorite stories, which didn't make it into the piece was that a lot of these engineers, they kept telling me at a certain point in our conversation, they would say, did you know that Bayes was a reverend? And Bayes' theorem is kind of what we use to determine probabilities and mm. calculate them. And it's one of the um, equations that underlies most machine learning algorithms uh, and artificial intelligence. And so I was like, why are they asking me if I know that Bayes was a reverend? And then I looked it up and it turns out the reason that he created his theorem on probability was because he was trying to prove the existence of God. He was trying to calculate the likelihood that if a certain number of witnesses had testified to the resurrection of Christ, what is the likelihood that it actually happened? Um, and it's wow. just such a, you know, and when I saw that, I was like, well, here is this enchantment that underlies what we claim to, when we claim to be this way of finding truth, you know, and just exposing those stories, I think is so beneficial. Well, and I, um, I hear you about the demystifying it. And um, I feel like I've learned an awful lot about AI with without a lot of effort, like there is so much out there yeah. for ordinary folks like us. Um, it, uh, it doesn't take much to, um, yeah, to just uh, expose ourselves to a bit more of the nuance of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think it's really important for people of faith and for all congregations to have conversations about it, not only so that they can shape technology and like have a voice in its future deployment, but also the other way around, right? You know, there is just this fundamental reality. Technology has already changed how we relate to our communities, to our lives, how we, you know, go to religious services during a pandemic. Um, it's become this kind of fundamental medium. And I think it's like very useful just to have moments to reflect and, and think about what the stakes of that are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's been fascinating as, um, you know, technology was a, um, a key piece in keeping communities together over the past two years. And, and it continues to be. But when I see the sheer delight that people have to be able to be in the physical presence of one another again, it's a really good reminder. Um, yeah, just of that beauty of this reality that we're in these bodies um, and create things in real life. Um, yeah, absolutely. Together. Yeah, and it's a corrective, right? Like we can't just live on our screens and that's not a substitute. <laughs> so I always, you know, I'd like to ask people about where they find hope or how they carry on. And I, you know, we've covered, uh, 
a fair bit of ground here and uh, your concern about um about ukraine and your personal connections there um i mean that the global heartache uh, for what's happening, I think, um, and how it's culminated after all these years um, is is palpable. So where in this world do you find your sense of sustenance? And, um, you know, maybe it's the dog that interrupted our, um, our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more, you are committed to telling stories that matter. Um, and you keep uncovering things that you can't even share the full depth of, um, I guess the hope and joy, but also the things that we should be afraid of. Um, why do you keep going back to those stories and what keeps you on that track? Yeah, I think, you know, one story always leads to the other. So, um, what well, right now I'm writing about forgiveness and, um, erasure and like how technology has given us the ability to preserve so many records right it means that people's criminal records live everywhere online but also mm -hmm. technology is the tool that we can use to erase them and like to free people from you know things that happened many years ago and for which they've done their time and have you know they shouldn't be punished anymore and so i'm really interested in things that are ambiguous things that don't have easy answers, things that tell us that, you know, many things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. um, but to be honest with the, what's going on in Ukraine, I really don't know if it's like I'm too close to it and I can't see it straight or if it's just so horrifying to look at every day until you become numb. I think it's, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. You know, when the war happened in 2014, you know, I was in Ukraine and a lot of my friends were there, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't a full on assault on places that I know and people that I know. Um, yeah. So I've been trying to think through that quite a bit. And I don't know that I've arrived at a place of hope yet. So I'll let you know if mm -hmm. I get there. Um, mm -hmm. But I think for now, I'm just trying to take notes and see, you know, speaking of AI, all the ways that technology is being harnessed to, you know, on the side of the Ukrainians to get their messages out and on the side of the Russians to kind of manufacture just so many fraudulent items and claims and to kind of contribute to the sense of um, disorientation uh, with facts. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think right now I'm just trying to <laughs> stay aware and look around. Yeah. Yep, stay in the moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, for those who are not in philosophy, um, I think your your field reveals a lot about your uh, orientation to this deep curiosity. Um, as I understand it, rhetoric is about um, it's a, about how we make the cases we make for the <laughs> the arguments we have. Absolutely, yeah. It's about yeah. you know, it's kind of the study of language and persuasion, and so how it's about how other disciplines make the case for what they are, right? So mm -hmm. I mostly do the rhetoric of law and the rhetoric of science. And I look at how these disciplines, you know, define themselves and what language they use to make claims that might seem strange to someone from the outside. Um, so yeah, I think it's extremely fun and extremely useful for 
being able to get your bearings in a world when things mean seem to mean many different things at once. Yeah. Well, thank you for your part in helping others to find their bearings and for showing up today with your your whole heart. Thanks. It was so, so great to meet you, Linda. Really lovely. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. You have been listening to Souls and Souls. I've been in conversation today with Linda Kinsler, and I'm Reverend Beth in Vancouver, Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. This interview today was part of our Artificial Intelligence Sermon and Podcast series. You can find out more and click on some links at canadianmemorial.org. Do remember to share this if you enjoyed it like and subscribe to souls and souls that others um, might learn a bit about what we're trying to do to make the world a better place until next time